You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about. Okay, how are you doing? Hi, people. 8 o'clock, 31st of August 2021. How's it going? Welcome to episode 66 of the Sports Therapy Association podcast. How are you? My name is Matt Phillips, creator of One Chat Live. Um, and in these weekly shows recorded live um, on YouTube and the Sports Therapy Association Facebook page, we get experts from around the world to do with soft tissue therapy uh, to bring you free CPD and quality information, all kind of along the lines of providing you with evidence-informed information uh, to help you become better therapists. That's what it's all about. Um, tonight, I'm very excited to, again, welcome another guest back. Uh, Jamie Johnston of the Massage Therapist Development Centre is going to be talking to us very soon um, about the fear avoidance model. And I'm really excited if some of you haven't heard of that, um, because it fits in so nicely with probably pretty much everything we've said in episodes one to 65. It's going to make a lot of sense. It helps a lot of things come together. Um, if you, even if you are aware of it, you're probably not aware of half of the implications and how it's been developed. So I'm very excited. We're going to be talking to you about that shortly. But before we do go into that, it's the end of the month, end of August, and I just want to do a recap on some of the guests we've had on the show because it's really been an astounding month. I mean, the whole all the whole 66 episodes have been amazing, but um, this month in particular, I just wanted to bring it up to remind you. So at the beginning of the month, um, we had a episode uh, with Jennifer Oliver and Andy Hosgood which is all about the integration of sports therapists into private practice and physio roles. Something really topical and something we're going to be coming back to because so many sports therapists um, and, and sports massage therapists I talk to in the back of the mind have this nagging ideas. I need to be a physio. OK, yeah, I'm a sports therapist, but really I need to be a physio to actually get up there. That's kind of my goal. And it shouldn't be at all. Um, and um, it's going to be beautiful for you to hear if you haven't heard yet what's coming out of these two physios mouths Jim Oliver and and Andy Hosgood it should set you at peace because the fact is they're arguing that sports therapists um, should be allowed to work in private practice and physio roles in MSK um, and basically jobs should be um, advertising for the role rather than just the, the career or the qualification you've got should be looking at what you can do um, so it's a really good episode for anybody who's um, sort of worried and got imposter syndrome and kind of put physios on a pedestal and um, there's good and bad in every single profession and, and if anything we've learned over the last few years is it's who you are and what you do rather than what you studied um, so yeah that was uh, how we started off the month pretty powerfully eh? and just seven days later we went to um, Dr M Bender um, who, like our guest tonight, is in Canada. And she was uh, talking all about um, how sleep affects sports and performance. Um, a cracking episode again. It was an absolute pleasure to uh, speak to Dr. Amy Bender. And it, again, it was amazing to hear from her, who's an endurance athlete herself, a done Ironman, about how little we understand sleep and how much it affects performance and how much we forget about it when we're looking after somebody who's worried about uh, pain, injury um, or poor performance. Cracking episode um, and definitely somebody we're going to have back soon. Um, the month then continued with, oh, this was again, Dr. Gary Mendoza. I was just sitting on a cloud all month. Um, this was one of, it was just such, so thought provoking. It was all about motivational interviewing which again, I say, and I don't like the name, but the, the subject matter of it is all about listening to your client to see what stage they're in, in terms of being able to change their behavior. When somebody comes to you in pain or injury, chances are they've done something which they mustn't do again. So they're going to have to change their behavior. Um, 
and this was just just a fantastic hour with with another great educator who I urge you to listen to. It breaks down what motivational interviewing is and gives you fantastic ideas on how to incorporate it into the time you spend talking and more importantly listening um, to your clients. So do give Gary a listen to. Um, and then last week we had Paul Coker in the house back again, for popular demand, uh, who again just blew my mind. It was a fantastic episode all about not just balanced training, but understanding the vestibular system and the relationship between the, the integral system inside your ears um, and your eyes and how they operate together and how we often neglect this in part of rehab. We talk about balanced training and that might be standing on one leg. And sometimes it's the progression of that is seen as standing on a wobble board, but it's not at all. It's about improving the coordination and the ability of your vestibular system, which is plastic like everything else in the body pretty much and can be improved, especially if you've had a, a sprain or something on your ankle. The vestibular system will have been altered because you're probably going to spend more time on this side limping along. So you need that rehab incorporated to balance this out again. And he showed some amazing exercises. I've had reports of people at home following their thumb with their eyes and trying to do all of the paths and the diagonal stuff. Um, so cracking episode. And thank you so much for Paul last week. Um, so there we go. That was the month and the finale. Um, not putting too much pressure on uh, the guy at all. But um, we also welcoming back another huge name in terms of delivering evidence-informed information um, to specifically or particularly massage therapists, but valuable for any soft tissue therapist. Uh, Jamie Johnson is waiting patiently below um, from the Massage Therapist Development Centre. Um, who together with Eric Purves um, produce a fantastic podcast as well, which I urge you to listen to, um, called the Massage Therapist Development Initiative. You can see why I had to write that down every time I look up. Um, it's not because I've never heard of it in my life. It's just the Massage Therapist Development Initiative is tricky uh, to roll off your tongue. Um, but yeah, it's a fantastic podcast, fantastic website. And, and just, you know, Massage therapists spending their time looking for new massage techniques and soft tissue techniques and seeing the flashing lights of level 12 massage therapists. On this one, we learn how to use the elbow and then anti-clockwise. It's a load of, how can I just, I don't want to sound like Adam Meekins and swear, but no. Okay, if you're looking for CPD and you want to improve yourself as a therapist, then go to these places who we have as guests. Go and suck out all the information you can from this website. Have a look at the online courses that um, Jamie's offering there. Um, and it's not, well, it is a bias, but my bias is just giving you evidence-informed, evidence-based information. So very excited to bring him out. We're talking about the fear avoidance model. So there we go. Right. Sorry to keep him waiting. Um, I'm going to bring him up now. Obviously, if you are watching us live, then feel free to uh, comment and ask questions in the live feed. You can do that whether you're joining us on the Facebook page or whether you are joining us via YouTube. If you listen to the podcast, then uh, thank you very much as well. You're welcome to join us live if you want to, but do please leave us a good rating on Apple Podcasts in particular. Boom, breathe, Matt. Let's get rid of that and let's bring up Jamie Johnston. Hey, Jamie. Hey, how's it going? I'm okay. Sorry to leave you down there for half an hour, mate, but um, as we talk. Oh, no, I I'm hoping um, that uh, my head isn't going to completely fill up the screen after that introduction. Mate, because I know you, I know that the the curve of fantasticness across the month is not going to just drop <laughs> down at the end. It's just going to be, you know, working that. in the same direction. So thanks so much for giving us your time and joining us. Um, right, let's crack into it. So for people who haven't, I'm hoping as always that people, there are people listening either the podcast or join us live who don't know who you are and don't know about the MTDC. Give us a little brief synopsis about what it's all about and why you set it up. 
Uh, well, it's it's really all about trying to make the profession better. Um, and I know that's a, a bold statement to try to make. But um, when I graduated college and I started uh, looking at some of the information that was out there, and as I started getting more involved in uh, understanding pain science and things like that, I, I went, okay, something's got to change. Um, so my goal was basically just to start putting out as much valuable information as possible to help other therapists improve in practice. Um, and it doesn't mean that I'm a pro or anything like that. It's really just a matter of looking at the research and trying to disseminate it to share with everybody to be like, Hey, this is, this is the kind of stuff that we should be looking at. And it, it warmed my heart when you were talking about, um, you know, we're, we don't need to look at the next technique to do. We, I think I always make the joke that I learned everything I need to know about uh, techniques in the first two terms of school for us um because of the I, I hate that we call it soft skills but if we could all focus on on learning and being better at our soft skills we'd probably have a lot better outcomes with our patients so um so yeah i'm I, you confirm my bias all the way through that <laughs> yeah so there we go and um yeah so people should definitely check out your website it's going strong and uh how's the podcast going i must admit i haven't dipped in lately have you had anybody recently uh we just well we had um tristan attenborough on with us or sorry right yeah yeah yeah. uh we haven't published it yet so i have to uh sorry i'm just putting the do not disturb on so we don't get that chime um he was with us last week um so that'll be published in a couple of weeks i'm looking forward to listening to that a great two-hour discussion with uh, i'm sure he just sat on the fence and said it depends and kind of didn't really get too passionate about anything (laughs) there he is he's commenting now (laughs) is he here now he heard his name yay but it was it was just great you know we we may have had a few beers while we were recording that podcast and I went off on a few rants, but it was, it was a lot Tristan of fun. needs that to open himself up. <laughs> He's just such a subdued chap. Hey, Tristan, he is, thanks yeah. for joining us. Oh, great. That sounds very exciting. Well, there you go. Um, definitely worth listening to. Yeah. I put. I don't know if you saw it. I, oh, I, I do think so much, too much. I don't spend too much time on social media. I spend too much thinking about, do I put that post button or do I not? And I'll yeah. type something out and delete it. And, you know, that's my problem. I just saw another video today from a well-known, I won't say who, but a well-known representing the massage industry practitioner with educational videos. And it was like today's video, massage for Achilles tendinopathy. And I just put a tweet saying, explain to me how massage for a calf, for Achilles tendinopathy would differ from any other massage for a calf. It's a calf rub it that's all i put i thought oh no this is going to create but it didn't people obviously loved it but um it's so true isn't it defining massage techniques according to the injury is just so full of holes so full of well that and and that's like honestly that's a pretty misleading thing to say for whoever put that up because when we look at the tendon research all the tendon research says do not massage an irritated tendon so Mm -hmm. if you're now saying this is how to do a massage for an achilles tendinopathy i watched a bit of a little misleading like for this no no no, i didn't get that for start off it was wasn't achilles tendinopathy it was achilles tendinitis which is kind of like for us alarm bells going off you can't call yeah. it tendinitis but anyway yeah. but then it was just for this for, for achilles tendinopathy tendinitis i like to put them on their side because it allows you to get and i'm like what's that got to do with the kids <laughs> and, yeah. and then i just had to cut off anyway we digressed lightly <laughs> i think it, i think i saw that yes see, i did yeah. see your uh i did see your post on facebook about that because i was going to share it and i will probably share it later today it's just important man it's just anyway but i'm sure what we're talking about tonight will will uh dip into and out of that 
but um but anyway so yes the fear avoidance um model um how are we going to open it up when did you first uh, kind of notice well, this when did it become part of, i mean i have read posts from you going back probably five six years but when did it first become part of your practice um the, honestly i i don't know that it consciously became part of my practice but the, the more i got involved in in looking at graded exposure and adapted movements and kind of thing those kind of things that's where um i didn't realize that i was partaking in some of this and then you know, in the last year or so, started looking at the research, and I just bought uh, Valen's book on pain-related fear, and I've been going through that. So, uh, learning as I go, as hopefully we all are. But uh, it's really interesting stuff, and and I think if we can understand it better, the better outcomes we're going to have with our patients. So, you better give us a little definition for those who are not aware of what it's what it's talking about. Okay, and I'll apologize to your audience because I have like a ton of notes that I made for today's thing, so I might be reading back and forth. But, um, but basically, the fear avoidance model uh, states that in some circumstances, an individual uh, can associate making specific movements with harmful consequences. Um, and I'm sure that whether we thought about it or not, we've all seen this in our practice before. Um, and I think a great example was a couple of years ago, um, I had somebody who came in who had moved to town and had been dealing with chronic pain for two years. Uh, this person came in and normally what I would do is sit on my massage table and there's a chair there and I'll look at the person and be like, Oh, have a seat and kind of have your interview and chat. And, and this person stood up and was like kind of pacing back and forth by the chair. And I was like, why don't you have a seat? And they looked at me and said, because it hurts too much to sit. And it was a low back issue. And when they said that in the back of my mind, I was like, but you just drove here. So you sat down and drove here. So I'm sitting there going, okay, there's going to be a lot of stuff to unpack here. But I'm sure we've all seen that in our practice where people associate a certain thing with pain and then they avoid doing that thing, whether it's picking something up or, you know, bending forward or whatever it may be, where uh, rather than adapting to something, they just avoid the activity altogether. And that's really what the fear avoidance model is all about. Cool. Excellent. So yeah, I'm sure we've had, we can, we can think of clients who uh, have come in doing that and why let's start off with the, 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 why is it an issue? What's wrong? Isn't it good to, I mean, if you've sprained your ankle, you don't really want to go kind of jogging on uneven ground for a while, do you? Isn't it a good thing to be cautious? Uh, it's sure it's good to be cautious, but it's not good to completely avoid things. Um, and I think like, I think a great example is, you know, in the past, uh, all we recommended for back pain was bed rest. And now they're like, that's the worst thing you can do. Um, you know, when they look at hip and knee replacements, it used to be that you go through a certain amount of recovery time, but now they're the next day, they're like, get up and move. Let's, let's get that going. So of course, when it comes to an acute injury, we want to, we want to favor it because it's painful to be walking on that sprained ankle, but, uh, we don't want that to become three months down the road. The person is still worried about walking on that angle, the ankle, because they're worried that they're going to injure it every time they go and do something. Makes perfect sense. So how, how do we know then when the time has come for people to kind of be less cautious? Uh, well, I, one thing that I like to do, and I wish I had it here to share, but there's, um, there's a thing that was made up by a fellow named Dr. Cale Burgess, and it's a timeline of injuries to heal. So it, it lays out like if it's a hamstring strain, it should take this many days. If it's an ankle sprain, it should take this. And that's something that I've always liked to be to have on hand so that if somebody comes in and they're like, oh, I sprained my ankle two weeks ago and I'm still worried about walking on this. And perhaps they're still having some pain that you can look and, and go, well, 
you know, the research shows us that that's probably healed by now. So you're not, there, you know, there's probably no more tissue damage going on. It's just that for some reason that area is sensitized still. So let's look at what we can do to desensitize it because we know it's safe because it's healed and we know that it's safe for you to start moving around. And, and I think using that word safe is one of the biggest things that we can do to, to show people that, that they're okay or that they're not going to cause further injury by doing movement. And in terms of, I mean, let's go to worst case scenario or, or what often happens if people do keep fearing a particular movement and avoiding it, then what's the, what's the danger? What can happen? Uh, well, I mean, long term, there's a whole list of things that can happen that can lead to uh, disability is the big thing. Um, because quite often we see, especially with people who are dealing with chronic pain, that they could still experience pain, but still be able to do all their activities of daily living. It's just that they're managing the pain. And, and my buddy Keith Meldrum came up, I don't know if he came up with it, but he was the one who told me about it. He said, sometimes they just need supported self-management. So when we're looking long-term that maybe we're giving some supported self-management, but if they're not learning how to self-manage those things on their own, it leads to more disability. And that's, I mean, the last thing that we would want, and that can lead to uh, depression and anxiety and different uh, mental health issues associated with that, because now maybe the person isn't going back to work. And maybe, you know, we look at the biopsychosocial stuff that, you know, maybe now they have a spouse that's upset with them because they're having a hard time paying the mortgage. And, you know, maybe they're not able to lift their kids up and they're not able to go to the park with their kids because they're so worried about these things. Um, so the sooner that we can try to implement some strategies to show them that they're safe and, and that movement is good, then hopefully we can avoid it escalating to the point that those things are happening. Fantastic. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a really important thing. And like you said, even like 10, 15, 20 years down the line, we could have somebody who avoids picking up their grandchild or doesn't work anymore and just signs on because they feel like they can't sit at a desk anymore simply mm -hmm. because they've never been told by a health professional in the right way well, let's try this or how about if we do this or so yeah, and there's there's some very interesting stuff to go with that because the you know a lot of the research shows us that a therapist's beliefs get passed on to a patient um so we have what i like to call is very well-meaning practitioners that are still telling people that uh their ileum's rotated that their rib is out that these things so they're continually thinking i have to go back every time i experience some back pain I have to go back and get treatment because my rib is out, because my hip is rotated. So that in itself is actually creating more disability, um, simply by the way that we communicate with people. So we can fuel the fear avoidance model by what we say yes. and what we do. Yeah, yeah. And even if it's our belief that, that that's going on, because maybe somebody hasn't read some of the updated research, those beliefs get passed on to the patient and, and that can cause catastrophic issues as well. So once again, I mean, hopefully this is all sounding familiar. That little 10 minute conversation with me and Jamie just kind of chewing the fat. I mean, should hopefully what I, what I want this to be. And I love the way you talk about it, Jamie, because you're so non-threatening. And I can imagine you, if you talk to me like you talk with a patient or a client, I can imagine they're not going to feel like oppressed or cornered or, but that's, that's, it's not something that all therapists are aware of or know, do they? They 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 struggle with this concept and they see themselves, their career being threatened. But yeah. I think the language is so important because I remember kind of like 
I don't know. I like to think I was ahead of my time just because I'm a bit of a nerd and a geek and I just follow and read people and stand on the shoulders of giants. And I'm a bit uh-huh. of a skeptic and I like being confrontational, maybe a devil's advocate. But I think you need those traits to challenge things. And yeah. I remember maybe, I think it was when I had uh, Mike Stewart of No Pain uk coming to clinic and i've mentioned this a few times so forgive me people listening but this was probably going back 2015 or something or more 2013 maybe but he was all about the words you use and i remember at the time telling people saying you know should you really tell this person that um or should you really give them a t-shirt that says athlete in rehab could this kind of condition them to think that they're in rehab and therefore they're, they're not able to perform as they could do. And it's yeah. just going to, and they're like, Oh Matt, leave it out. Will you? Have you got anything better to do than to worry about the words we use? And it's like, should we be calling this a patient or should we call it a client? And maybe six, seven years ago, loads of people were like, come on, it doesn't make a difference. This is just semantics, but it's finally showing it isn't it, that yeah. um, it doesn't matter what you say. And I think it's a really good entry door for any, cause it's not that threatening. I think there's lots of little tables out there which therapists who this sounds new to can look at the words they use and just look at the alternative and think, how would I feel if I heard the therapist saying that compared to that? How would I feel yeah. in terms of threatened if I was in pain? Or, um, and that's, yeah. that's something that we talk about a lot with, um, there's a, a, like a graph or a picture that we use when we teach our course that talks about all the things with low back, whether it's uh, a disprotrusion, whether it's degenerative disc disease, which isn't a disease. That's just part of aging, but it, it shows like they did a study of people who were asymptomatic. And as we got older, all of those conditions got worse, but the level of pain didn't necessarily increase with it because things like degenerative disc disease is just part of aging. And as we get older, our disc gets smaller. Um, so they can look at people in their fifties and they say that, you know, across the board about I'm going off the top of my head, but 50% or 60% of people have some degeneration happening, but they looked at all these people and they're like, they're asymptomatic. It's not that big of a deal. So yeah. I, I start to change it and just tell people, Hey, that's part of aging. And I'll just be like, if they took an X-ray of my back, it would show that I've got some arthritis too. It's just, yeah. it's just part of what we do. So don't let it freak you out. It's a big one. And there's some wonderful graphs. And like you say, and, and, and um, I can't remember the name of the study, but out which showed the level of degeneration in, in, I think it was on a bunch of asymptomatic hockey players or something, but showing how many had level tears and how many had this and that. And, and they were active, non-pain suffering sports people. Yeah. So the nice things to print out sometimes aren't they? So people can just kind of take in and go, wow. So it's normal yeah. to have that. Yeah. M. Turner. That's good. yeah. Let's have a little look. M. Turner here. If you ever see anybody on the site, can you see the comments? Can you see any of you? Yeah. If you see anything, anything, uh, somebody says something interesting, you want to kind of cut me short and say, oh, I want to answer M. For example, M here, I'll bring it up on the screen, but if you listen to the podcast, I'll read it out. M Turner, who's watching, thanks for joining us, M. Um, Pre-screening a client today, I have two slip discs, they said. I've had trouble with my back for years, although now my knees are really bad, I don't really notice my back. And then Emma in her mind thinks, okay, there's so much to discuss here. Um, And there is. Classic, isn't it? Yeah. And it's subjective. Um, so important to listen to her. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'd be like, well, that's awesome that you're not feeling your back. You know, that probably means that your discs are fine and, and they're not doing anything. Uh, so why don't we look at maybe why your knees are bothering you? It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your back. So let's dig in deeper with that a little bit. 
Very nice. Yeah. Um, and it, it should ring true to so many therapists that people come in, particularly with expressions like one of you, I'm sure, talked about. Oh, no, that was Emmy. Yeah, the slip disc thing. And it's oh, do you feel alone sometimes, Jamie? Do you ever lie awake at night thinking I'm just fighting all of the world? I had a friend recently who um, suddenly had a spasm in her back, was caught in a position, um, could hardly move. Obviously, really, really scary. Hasn't happened to her before, I don't think. Um, but went to see, doesn't matter what type of professional it was, went to see a professional who basically said, right, we can sort this out, um, did a load of manipulative stuff on her um, and said, right, the, tomorrow you're going to feel really terrible, but the day after you're going to feel great. He's, but his closing words were, obviously this is what the, the, she told me, but she paraphrased. It was her perception said. of it. So. Yeah, she came out, exactly. She came out and basically the message was, you got to make sure you never do this again. Otherwise you're going to be down an A&E next time. And it's not going to be so easy to sort. And that she said that to me twice and her fellow, her husband said that to me, you know what they said? They said that if she does it again, then she's going to be down at A&E. And those words, how someone's supposed to get better and start moving freely. If yeah. they think, if you do this again, you're going to go to A&E, you know, it's, yeah. and that was from a, yeah. Yeah, a healthcare professional, an allied professional, yeah. not a sports therapist, I will say. It was from an yeah. allied professional. The people who are allowed Tristan. to treat people during COVID. I love Tristan. Tristan just called this person a wanker. <laughs> Great. That's YouTube. Is it sensitive? Is it civil material? <laughs> Tristan's in the house. No, it's not anymore. It's not anymore. Uh, so the, that kind of leads into something that, that I find super interesting. And I, I've got a bunch of quotes from, from the book, but it talks about like uh, the way that we instruct and how, how a patient can learn from when we're talking. And it's talking about when we're giving verbal instruction. So right in line with you, we were just saying, it points out that a number of studies have shown that healthcare providers with a more biomechanical treatment attitude are more likely to advise activity restrictions, including work resumption. So where that one gets me is um, before I was an RMT, I was an industrial first aid attendant at a sawmill. So um, I would be dealing with people getting injured on the job all the time. And do you guys have what we call WCB, Workman's Compensation Board in the UK? Probably. I'm very uninformed when it comes to that. Okay. So where if you get injured on the job, you've got insurance there that, that, helps you out. So if you're off the job injury, you're getting paid. Um, So this representative from WCB was in talking to me and and at the time, and this is back in like 2006, said, we've done studies. And if people have been off the job for 18 months, chances are they're never going back to that job again. So when we look at like the biomechanical attitudes, um, that can very much play into this person's off work injured and they're going to a practitioner who's telling them uh, to advise certain activities, which includes going back to work. And if this person who's in this position of white coat syndrome kind of thing is saying, don't bend forward, don't do this, or you're going to end up in the A&E, that now that person's going, well, now I definitely can't go back to work in a sawmill where I have to lift boards up and do all this other stuff. Um, so it goes back to that whole, that it leads to more disability. It doesn't necessarily lead to like more pain or pain relief, but it increases disability. And how tragic is that for those people that have been told that uh, by a practitioner for somebody else? And then some of the other things that they pointed out in the book is that a biomechanically oriented provider dealing with chronic pain may suggest that all activities be avoided. Whereas if we look at a more biopsychosocial approach, they might they may suggest no relationship between activities and harm, which is what we really should be preaching. Um, 
but we, we know that a practitioner's belief can influence a patient's beliefs like we talked about. Um, so it actually points out that the fear avoidance model should also be extended to healthcare providers. providers. So all of us should be taking this information and, and understanding it so that those fear avoidance things aren't being put onto our patients, which is brilliant if, if hopefully all of us start doing it. Yeah, I've yet to, I don't know, I suppose, I'm just trying to think, I've yet to, in the UK, I've yet to meet a client in, I don't know what it is, 17 years of practice, who has come from a GP who has told them not to rest it for a week. Yeah. You know, in the UK, and that might just be just the people I've seen. It's anecdotal, but it is 17 years. Yeah. Every time they come from the GP, obviously, again, like you, that was really clever what you said, even if it's not at verbatim, if it's not exactly what the GP said, that's the impression that person yeah. got from the talk. And that's what they said to me. They said, oh, my GP told me to rest it for a week. Yeah. I've never, ever heard somebody coming from the GP who said right we need to start seeing what you can do just play around with it you're not going to really hurt yourself again just see if you can gradually put some weight in it never it's always been rest it rice yes and ice yeah. yeah um is it the same way you are in Canada or do, are the GPs catching up or what's it about I th I think they're catching up and I think the especially the younger um, generation of them are catching up, but um, I have a good buddy that's a doctor, um, and we work in hockey and things like that together. And we were just doing the basketball Olympic qualifiers while they were, while they were in town, and super evidence based guy. And we were having lots of chats about this stuff. And he he actually pointed out something pretty brilliant to me because we're talking about words. And he said, "Jamie, I'm at the point now that if somebody comes in and say they're having low back pain and there's a red flag there, he goes, we might send them in for an MRI to see if they're." is anything in there he goes so i've gotten to the point that if we see a growth in their low back i don't even say the word tumor to people anymore i'll just say you have a growth because there's no guarantee that that thing is a tumor but as soon as i say there's a tumor on your spine they're like i've got cancer he's like but we don't know if that thing's benign yet or if it is cancer mm -hmm. so I, i'll never use the word tumor with people anymore it's always you have a growth mm -hmm. and i'm like thank god <laughs> There are guys like you out there, and, and that's kind of the stance that he takes with everything. Is that um, because of his training, or is it because of stuff he's done on the side? You know? um, I, I, I wouldn't say that it's because of his, like, I mean, he's in his 60s, so oh, um, I, I wouldn't say stuff. that it's because of his schooling way back when. Mm. It's it's what he's done since. Mm. Um, yeah, but even the story that we were talking about before with the, the hockey player and that, that, you know, watching that evidence, then this is a different doctor, but watching that evidence-based doctor communicate with that girl when she got hurt was just it was really rewarding to watch mm. fantastic let's have a look what becky carroll has to say in the side here because becky she opens her mouth and just sense pours out of it let's have a look becky carroll says i'll read it out for people listening to the podcast um client sat opposite me terrified of bending forwards i asked if he could pass his shoes to me so i could look at his trainers he folded over chester thighs to pick up his shoes to pass over to me i had a grin going ear to ear in your in your imagination i hope Becky. Yeah. um as i pointed out that he had just performed spinal flexion without so much as wincing um the very action he feared it was a miracle this is kind of I, I like what you said at the beginning. Patients are good therapists, informed, enlightened, as Greg Lehman used that word the other day, which I loved. That's a really nice way. Enlightened therapists have probably been using principles from the fear avoidance model without even knowing it, like yeah. you said, because it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Let's see if I can make that person do what they said they couldn't do. 
without actually using the words or letting them know that I'm looking at it. So that's a great example there, Becky. Yeah, um, that, that's a phenomenal example. And as we were just talking about learning, um, the, the research also shows that uh, there's observational learning that goes with that. So um, you kind of off the cuff made the joke that hopefully you didn't have that expression on your face, but I hope you had that expression on your face. <laughs> I hope you were grinning ear to ear when that guy did that, because when we look at observational learning, um, people who are dealing with pain, um, they can have a reaction even from seeing other people do a movement that they're fear that they fear. Um, so some of the studies showed like somebody could be watching a movie and say, just say bending forward was their feared movement that when they see people bending forward in the movie, uh, there's increased activation in the paraspinals because they're, they're that feared about it. But part of the good thing with observational learning is that our facial expressions are a huge part of that. So if, if you were that person who had, um, the same thoughts that you know, you know, you're the practitioner that's going, Oh, bending forward is bad. And the person does that. And you're going like, I don't know if that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Then that observation is going to be more instilling of fear avoidance. Whereas if you have that big smile on your face and you go, look what you just did. That, that does it the other way. Right. Very good. That will hopefully start to reverse that. So, yeah. so I say, I say, Becky, you have that big, beautiful smile, smile every single away. time you're doing something like that. Like the parents looking at a child who just fallen over and they're just kind of smiling, going, it's fine, you're not in pain. It's, it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? You look and see yeah. the action. Yeah. You know, I was just worried about, I mean, it, and it's a question I wanted to ask you of some of the dangers of this. I think it's interesting to look at some of the dangers because it is. it has been criticized a bit, potentially being a little bit simplified. But then all of these things can have that same criticism. But are there dangers of telling a client who believes they can't do it you can do it of course you can obviously we've got that overlying thing of it's all in your head which is a horrible one which can often be mm -hmm. interpreted but what are some of the let's go into some of the are there some techniques or things you recommend in how to get people to break down or avoid or get out of this fear avoidance cycle uh well i think that's where like graded exposure is such a an amazing thing um, and, you know, adapted movements, I took a course with, uh, and it's part of what I teach now, but a course with Corey Blickenstaff years ago, where he showed us all these different things that you can do. And, and I do it. It's my favorite part of my practice now is when people come in and they're like, I can't do this thing. And then you just put them in a different plane of movement. So like one of the beautiful ones is, you know, you have somebody who comes in and, uh, the, so the exact story that Becky just told somebody who's fears bending forward. Um, and I'll just be like, okay, well, let's see if we could just do that in a different plane. And I'll explain to them that think about when you're bending forward, basically what you're doing is you're bringing your chest closer to your knees and they're like, okay. And then I'll put them in on the massage table and put them in like tabletop position and get them to go down into child's pose. And every time they go, I'll just be like, okay, just, just go until you feel, you know, a little bit of discomfort or a little bit of tension in your low back. And, but I want it to feel safe. Don't do anything that causes pain. And using that word safe over and over and over again, I think is very helpful. Um, but then just drop your bum down to your heels. Now come out of it again. Now I want you to think about just nudging a little closer to your heels until eventually they're doing it. And then I'll look at them and be like, so now where are your, where's your chest in relation to your knees? And their chest is basically right on top of their knees. And I'll go, okay, so let's hop off the table now. So now just try to touch your toes. And inevitably almost every time, they go down and they get up and they look at me and they're like, how the fuck did you do that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I didn't, you did. Um, but you, but just putting people in a different plane of movement to show them that that movement is safe, uh, that we didn't cause a whole bunch of pain and yet you're still doing lumbar flexion. You're just doing it differently. 
and then playing around with movement more and more and more with them. Um, it's just, I, to me, it's the most rewarding part of, of what I do with people. Fantastic. I just, um, I'm just aware, and again, I'm playing a bit devil's advocate that it comes so easy to you. Obviously you've looked into it and maybe this whole thing of it's part of empathy, I guess there's an interesting mm-hmm. post going out. I think again, from Dr. Gary Mendoza, who I recommend you follow if you don't and everybody listening, he does some fantastic little, not memes, just, just kind of like things on Instagram to make you think the six words. And he was talking the other day about whether people are born with empathy, whether you can develop empathy, if it's something you haven't been born with. And, if you do have empathy, then I guess the whole of graded exposure of understanding that person is really scared and not belittling it or laughing at it or thinking, oh, get you, you know, sort it out or laughing when they actually have done what you, what they said they couldn't do. Mm-hmm. But it's um, for somebody who it doesn't come naturally, then what would you recommend they do? It might not come as naturally as it does for us, in other words. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, I think one of the my favorite things to say is, like, they call it a practice for a reason, for, for what we do at work, right? So just practice and just start start small. Um, start with little things. So, you know, maybe it's listening to this podcast and then going, okay, what's the fear avoidance model? What does that mean? And then trying to digest that a little bit and going, okay, well, well now that I understand that more, when people are coming in, maybe I'm not going to laugh at them or I'm not going to react that way. Um, but just talking to them about, well, let's look at what you can do, not what you can't do. And to do all this stuff, it it's like comes through in the research over and over and over again, that it's all about therapeutic relationship and it's trust in that therapist. So maybe you start off with, you know, we look at active range of motion, passive range of motion, that kind of stuff. Maybe we're doing active assisted range of motion. So maybe it's, you know, if they, if they're having difficulty bending forward and we put them into that child's pose thing, maybe it's your hands are on their back the entire time and you're supporting them and you're saying, okay, let's do this together. You tell me when this starts to feel like it's discomfort and then you help them come out of it. And then you gradually pull back into it and just start to look at those different possible movements that maybe the active assisted is the best way to start. And in turn, because you're supporting them through it, it builds that trust in the therapist and it builds that therapeutic alliance until you can start to go, okay, I'm going to do the first, say, two or three movements with my hands on you and support you through it. Then I'm going to gradually back off and then you've got them doing it on their own. When they when they realize that this isn't causing pain, I don't necessarily need you to have your hands on me. And you just start to build that up and work together with them because again, the research all shows that it has to be a collaborative thing between you and the patient. And when you're setting those goals and you're sending the therapeutic intent, it should be a collaboration where it's a discussion between you and your patient about where you want it to go and what activities they want to get back to. And then encouraging them that, you know, even though we did that as an active assisted, you could do this at home as a little bit of home care. And then the next time you come back, we'll, we'll grade it up a little bit and we'll try something a bit different. Um, and you know, some of the stuff is just, maybe the person comes in and they just want to go and work in their garden. And normally they would go work in the garden for two hours. And I'll just be like, well, why don't you just try 10 minutes in the garden, see how it feels. And if it feels really good, then take a break, go back and do another 10 minutes later and then start to build on it. So they're gradually exposing themselves to more of that thing that they really enjoy doing. So nice. It's lovely just listening to it. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting and thinking, yeah, I feel better now. Um, but it, it sounds so logical and yet it's easy for us to talk about this and go, yeah, do it. But for me, 
the biggest barrier is like you said if you're fresh off a course where they've been showing you how to go to that objective do your analysis detect whether something's out of line and try this new special technique because you're going to loosen as soon as you're on that ship as soon as you're on board of that way of doing it you're not listening anymore are you you're just going to that knee or that ankle and you're your your reputation relies on you being able to rub the hell out of this tendon or something because yeah. you're going to create some kind of mechanotransduction and help it healing and that's the yeah. biggest barrier i think for some therapists just to go this is the power you know yeah. this is what i'm going to how i'm going to help you by listening to you understanding where you are and then giving you just gentle suggestions not even advice i had this conversation with um Anne Marie, who you know, Anne Marie Mazziari, yeah, from the Massage Collective, and she was picking up on on the on my use of the word advice, and I was being a little bit kind of like um, argumentative because I believe that we do give advice. Her argument was, you don't need to give advice; you just talk to your client, and they've got the answers inside. You just help them discover those answers by having a conversation. She was she was playing again, playing around with words that we don't give advice. I was saying ultimately we are advising because that's what people want, but it was it was conscious. Yeah, it was a nice debate on the use of a word and how that can have different meanings. But it is a problem. And I think the people who struggle the most are the people who fear that all their power is in their hands and what they're going to do to that person's body. And they don't realize it's that, is it? It's that operator versus interactor thing, Mm. right? Yeah, it's the it's the you're going to come in and I'm going to do something to you rather than us collaboratively saying, this is where we'd like to go. And, and I had, I don't remember who, but I had this discussion recently with somebody where it's, there's also a certain amount of like the expectation from the patient when they come in that they just want to lay on the table and get rubbed. And we've got to start, I think we have to start changing that not only ourselves, but we have to start changing that perception as a profession. Mm-hmm. We need to start changing that so that, you know, that isn't the expectation of the patient when they come in that, you know, every single patient who comes in should expect to do, some kind of movement, some kind of education, some kind of home care incorporated into it. And, and I think if we're, if we're very used to being the, the therapist who just treats and doesn't do that other stuff, then um, not, and it's not to say that you've done anything wrong, but we need to start making that change. And maybe that's just with each patient that comes in, it's just a little bit of a change each time until we start to get more confident with incorporating all of that stuff into what we're doing. Fantastic. Great advice. I liked a post you put recently, and anyone who doesn't follow Jamie, you should do. Um, you've got those daily updates. I think, um, yeah, I think if you sign up for the newsletter, then that comes through. And not only, again, saluting you here, because not only do you <laughs> make your observations, you've always been very keen on highlighting, highlighting articles you've read from other therapists and going, wow, mm-hmm. have a look at what this guy's put. And, and it's fantastic doing that. I think it's really um, admirable. Well, thank you. But you were talking recently about, it seemed to actually kind of strike a chord with you about somebody basically said that this isn't in your scope of practice and how other professionals. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, well, some people I mean, listening to this might be thinking, I'm a massage therapist. This isn't what I do. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not supposed to do exercise of some form, but yeah, take it yeah. away. Well, I mean, and I know with our friends down in the US, I get a lot of feedback from them where they're like, exercise isn't in my scope and providing exercise prescription is in my scope. I'm like, okay, but active range of motion and passive range of motion are both in your scope. So who's telling you that you can't do exercise because both of those things are movement and exercise. So to me, if you're working in a clinic where 
maybe there's a clinic owner who is of a different profession or even it's of the same profession that's saying, that's not your scope. You can't do that. I'd tell them to pound sand because, but, but it's also very important for us to know our scope and know it inside out. Um, and I had a situation like that where somebody challenged me on my scope and I was like, you think I haven't read the interjurisdictional competency report of what we're allowed to do? And, and they kind of looked at me and they're like, uh, the, what? <laughs> I'm like, exactly. I know my scope. <laughs> so it's, it's incumbent on us to know that scope of practice. But if your scope says you can do active and passive range of motion, you can do all of the stuff that we've been talking about so far. It's, and that's not necessarily, a, you know, you need to go home and do five deadlifts for 10 reps and with this amount of weight. That's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and honestly, I think most rehab type stuff that we're going to do has nothing to do with going and doing deadlifts. It's let's get you back to those things that you love doing. Let's, let's get you so you can pick up your kids so you can take the garbage out so you can do these other things. So, Fantastic. The, um, I also liked, I'll get to the questions, by the way, people, don't worry, we'll get you in a sec. I liked just uh, back about 10 minutes ago, I was on my mind where you showed the importance of putting a hand on someone's back just to, to, to give them that confidence to do movement. And, and that really rings bells with me because often massage therapists will think that, yeah, the hands is the important bit and the power of touch and all that. But we forget that just putting a hand on someone's shoulder is the power of touch. It doesn't mean you have to be massaging them and manipulating and doing this. That contact starts the moment you kind of put your hand just on their back and they're not even aware of it. So they do flex forward or something or do it. You know. Yeah. That is the power of touch um, as well. So yeah, good I, I, everybody who's listening today, if you have a patient that comes in tomorrow and say they're having an issue with shoulder abduction or flexion and say they can do shoulder flexion, but they can only get to like here, just get them to put their arm out grab their shoulder like this and just help them move through it until they eventually get up straight and then let go. And they'll be able to get up fully straight. Mm-hmm. That little bit of assisted, like just a bit of confidence and a little bit of like, I got you and help them move through that is absolutely brilliant. Um, and it's always funny to see the look on their face afterward. They're like, how did that just happen? But you got to be confident. It's interesting because, and I think again, that's where therapists who don't, respect the robustness of the human body because they've been given courses showing that oh this is impinged and they can't move this it could be frozen it could be this it could be that if you haven't got confident in your client's body then how are you going to grab their arm and kind of exude that confidence and pass it on to them it's like a mm-hmm. it's like a new student on a course who's not used to just attaching someone they're kind of like well how do i hold their arm and they're all awkward yeah and you kind of try to instill that confidence but yeah you've got to believe that you're not going to make that arm fall off and be confident with it and you know because totally. that, that transmits doesn't it yeah um funny i don't know how how deep you want to get into like case study ideas and things like that but um i just remember a patient like the- that i I remember a patient that I saw several years ago. I had never seen this person before. Um, woman comes in and I was like, okay, what brings you in today? And she looked at me and said, well, for two years, I haven't been able to get my shoulder past here. And I was like, for two years, okay, what happened? And she said, well, I tore my rotator cuff um, and had to have surgery on it to repair it. And I was like, okay, that that sucks. And she goes, yeah, but the thing is, I used to be a hairdresser. I loved being a hairdresser. I was an awesome hairdresser. And I had to give that up. And now I work for the government behind a desk and I hate my job. And I was just like gutted. And hopefully that facial expression didn't come through, but um, I'm sitting listening to her. And I said, well, why, why couldn't you go back to being a hairdresser? And she said, well, the surgeon told me if I did, 
um, then I would probably need another surgery. And the physiotherapist I went to said, if I went back to that, the surgery I just had would pale in comparison to the one that I had. The, or the second one I would need would pale in comparison to the one I just had. And I was just, in my mind, I was like, the only reason you can't move that shoulder is because those two people told you you can't. And so in the first treatment, she's laying on her back and I'm just holding her arm and I'm kind of treating her pec and I'm talking to her, just distracting her until I'm finally like moving the arm up until it was here. And she's talking away and I just went, can you just look at your arm? And she just went, how the fuck did you do that? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, cause your shoulder's okay. I'm like, it's deconditioned now because for two years you haven't moved it up past here, but there's no reason you can't be a hairdresser. And she was just looking at me like, what are you talking about? And she got off the table and was like, for two years, I haven't been able to do that. I'm like, well, it'll probably take a few more treatments for you to get back to where you can just move that freely. But then we'll have to talk about getting you in the gym in order to strengthen that shoulder up because you haven't used it for two years. Mm -hmm. And I think on the third treatment, she was like, is it okay if I cut my husband's hair tonight? I'm like, absolutely. I'm like, but just keep in mind, your shoulder's going to be sore tomorrow because you've now done an activity that you haven't done for two years. So it's going to be sore, but that doesn't equal tissue damage. There's nothing wrong with your shoulder. It's just, you haven't done that thing. And she was, and she never came back to do the strengthening stuff. And I don't know where she's at now, but at least got her to the point that she can move her shoulder and cut her husband's hair. I'm betting but my it, husband got a fantastic haircut that night as well. Yeah. That was one. But it, but it goes back to that whole healthcare practitioner's beliefs were passed on. And now this person for two years has had disability and had to change their job. Yeah, that's really bad. It's just um, because sad. of words. Mm. Powerful stuff. Yeah. And obviously it's not always going to be that way. Sometimes you'll try and lift it up and, and it won't um, budge maybe, or it'll yeah. be in pain. But again, graded exposure it's all about you know it's not fearing it it's uh yeah great stuff yeah. showing showing capacity rather than um what they can't do definitely right let's have a little look here uh claire what have you got claire let's have a read thanks for joining us claire claire says i hear quite often from my clients that when they've been to other healthcare professionals they have been told that there's nothing more that can be done to help them I think it's unfortunately more of a lack of time and listening to help people, something that in sports therapy we have more chance to do. Yeah, there is that point as well. We generally, especially because over here, a lot of us are in the private healthcare. So we do have an hour with that patient and it is and very tricky. In our NHS, you maybe got a 50 minute appointment and to get that, it's, it's, time helps therapeutic alliance, doesn't it? You can do better in 50 minutes, but. And that, that right there is why I firmly believe that we can be, the absolute leaders in musculoskeletal care mm. because we get that hour with people. They mm. will talk to us about things that they won't talk to their doctor about. Mm. Um, when we're looking at biopsychosocial stuff, when they're like, my kids are stressing me out, this is going on. It's like, okay, well, those are all things that can contribute to this. So, you know, not that we need to counsel them, but that, that time we get to spend with them is magical in comparison to other healthcare professionals. So uh, I say use use that to your benefit as much as possible. Definitely. Great point, Claire. Brilliant. Um, I'm not sure if this is Gary. Gary's a bit ill, Gary. Gary um, Benson, the founder. This might be Jake. I'm not sure. But anyway, from the Sports Therapy Association icon comes, I always advocate saying, go to the D of discomfort. That's quite nice. Yeah. It's a nice way of doing it. I love that. Yeah. Um, Brian Huxley. Catherine Reimer says, I'll read it out for podcast listeners. I had a client um, that had a lower back operation and came to me disheartened that the operation hadn't worked. Uh, it was affecting him physically and mentally. 
He owned his own business as a radiator engineer, which is a physical job. After talking to him and doing some massage, which I think gave him a break and helped relax the central nervous system. Before the massage, he struggled to take his shoes off. And after whilst distracting him by chatting him about to put, uh, he put his shoes on without thinking about it. He didn't realize until I said, which made him smile. Yeah. Again, it's that kind of distraction. Yeah. Good job, Catherine. I like it. Yeah. Great job. Um, bum, 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 bum. Tristan is just picking up Sapolsky. Definitely a little bit of zebra mm-hmm. action there for touching, stroking, hugely beneficial. Um, it's nice. I can, when I can put Tristan up on the screen without any swear words or explicit. <laughs> Good. And Anna Marie is in the house. Just talking about you a second ago, Anna. Um, how are you? Beautiful passive range is so useful to show clients their potential of movement. Isn't it just, yeah, yeah. it's really, really, really nice. Um, do I bring it up? Yeah, why not? I don't know whether you've been following um, the deadlift um, dramas of Adam Meekins on social media. Have you been following that? Uh, Dipping uh, in and out? W- w- with, with his low back pain? He's kind of been videoing kind of the last 18 days or something when he hurt himself during a deadlift. Yeah. And he was just kind of showing that the evidence says with, with, with kind of lower back pain, then he basically was doing graded exposure. And it was quite a useful video. But nice. a lot of people were jumping on his on his case, just saying, why don't you go and see someone? It could be this. It could be that. Go and see someone. Try this. Try that. And obviously he, in his in, in his way, was kind of saying, don't tell me what to do. You know, I've been yeah. a physio for the last eight, <clears throat> 10 years or something. I don't need to see no one. I'm not, I don't need to get some massage. And, yeah. But of course, I was thinking in the back of my mind, it's very different for him. Although he did explain that he was kind of going through the worries and have I done this to myself? And it's always sure. interesting being in the, in the place of a patient, isn't it? Because you understand yeah. what they're suffering. But for him, he had the bigger voice probably in his head, the, the clinician's voice. But for a lot of other people who are going through this, going to see another person, um, like you say, that talk can be hugely important and can mm-hmm. really help calm the beast and keep them away from the doors. Can't it getting that reassurance and, and the passive movement you, you know, it's not telling everybody if you hurt yourself to stay at home and don't see a therapist whatsoever. It's just go and find a therapist who's going to work, listen, work with you and listen to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And rule out those red flags. And once those are gone, then you can be confident to sit yeah. there and go, we can do movement. We can do this stuff. And, Definitely. So, and yeah. so much can, so much can come from a conversation. Mm. Um, you know, I, th- I don't remember if we talked about it last time, but I, I had a new person come in to see me a little while ago and the, the treatment was 35 minutes of them talking and then 25 minutes of me doing treatment. Right. And they got a lot of stuff off their chest. And I remember the the second time this person came in to see me, I talked to them about like um, the dims and sims that uh, mm-hmm. Mosley and those guys talk about mm-hmm. and was talking about the sims and the person walked out and basically had been 30 years of chronic pain and said, this is the first time that I haven't been feeling pain. Mm-hmm. And as they walked out the door, looked at me and said, thank you so much for being one of my safety signals. And I just started crying, but stuff. yeah, you know, but that the communication end of it, that talk, that all of this stuff talks about in the research with the fear avoidance model, um, you know, whether it's learning by verbal instruction or those facial cues or observational learning, those things, all that communication stuff is so important and us being able to build resilience in those people to show them that movement is safe is it's so crucial and avoids disability, hopefully avoids disability. Definitely. Let's bring up, um, just for people who are interested, because uh, as always, 55 minutes has suddenly gone by. I'm just going to put up, <laughs> people listening to the podcast, you can't see this, but I'll bring it up. 
uh, just to show you how the research works. It's interesting. So uh, the fear avoidance model, actually um, English paper, English guy, um, Letton in, in 19, what was it, 83, um, when it started talking about confrontation versus avoidance and the idea of graded exposure and how if you avoid something, then it can uh, perpetuate that pain and lead to disability and fear of moving all this sort of stuff that was 83 and now we're in 21 and i'm seeing across social media now more and more people talking about it it's a nice example isn't it of how research happens and it does take a good few years for it to actually start getting through the clinician's door wouldn't you say yeah well i think even um the biopsychosocial was first pitched as an idea back in the 70s yeah yeah right yeah, so yeah. If we were to take all this stuff now and start incorporating it in practice, man, we'd be we'd be rocking the world and having a lot better outcomes with our people. Definitely, yeah. Um, and then we'll make sure these papers get put into the links because it's interesting for people to see where this is all coming from. This is the 2000 kind of update, um, uh, which was kind of looking again at this model um, and showing how new evidence and, and research was kind of backing it up even more. And they just kind of yellowed it out here. But for people listening to the podcast and they kind of say they conclude, well, within the abstract anyway, although there are still a number of unresolved issues which merit future research attention, pain related fear and avoidance appear to be an essential feature of the development of a chronic problem for a substantial number of patients with musculoskeletal pain. So it's a big deal. It ticks a lot of boxes, I think. Um, it's definitely worth you guys um, having a look at it. This diagram, Jeremy, I'm going to put it on the screen, but I think it's a really nice visual for people yeah. watching live. Talk us through it and what's being shown on it. We can still hear you. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we've got that person who comes in who's been injured uh, and they're having a pain experience. And so they can go two different ways. And a lot of this has to do with the way that we talk to them and what we're explaining to them. So if that person comes in who's having a pain experience, and let's just use low back pain for an example, and we go, oh, well, that's happening. And and I was totally guilty of this. I used all these old narratives of, you know, all oh, your SI joints out. Um, you know, like we've talked about, that person then looks at that and goes, oh, there's there's something in me that's broken. There's, there's an issue that I can't necessarily fix. And then you know, they swing over to pain catastrophizing, which leads to, you know, they're mentally, they're going, oh my God, this, I'm broken. There's this thing wrong with me, which goes to pain related fear. And then they start going, well, when I felt that back pain start, it was when I was, I don't know, bending over to pick something up. So if I just stop bending over to pick things up, then that pain will go away, which then they start avoiding that altogether. And you, I mean, that's a pretty simple one. If you think about how much we have to bend over to pick things up just in general life, whether we're involved in sport or whether we're picking kids up or whether we're just vacuuming at the house. Um, it starts to go like to disuse, which then affects like the cardiovascular system, the muscular system, all these things and can have uh, mental effects like depression and anxiety and leads to disability. Whereas if they come in and they're having this pain experience and we can give them a much better explanation and show them that, you know, they don't have a bunch of tissue damage, that they're safe to move and we can start to go, okay, we'll reduce that fear and they can start to confront and do those movements. They've got a much better chance of recovery as opposed to um, going the other way. So that in itself is, is really the fear avoidance model of, of pain. Um, so if we can start to study all those things that for me are on the left-hand side there, um, the, the fear avoidance and disability and all those things and educate people properly, um, 
then hopefully we're going to have them more on that right side where they're confronting it and, and they're leading into recovery. Um, but I think it's, it's also very important, I think, to give a good explanation of what's going on with them, but we don't necessarily need to talk to them like we're talking to another practitioner. And I, I think a good example of that is, um, I don't know if you guys know who Connor Collins is. He's a, a fellow over here um, in Ontario who does a lot of concussion work. And he did a presentation in my membership for us yesterday all about concussions. And he said that when he first started really getting into concussion stuff, he was going into the like minute details with patients and being like, you know, these are the things going on. And he goes, what that led to was a lot of people going, oh my God, my brain's inflamed and it's swollen, which led to more of the catastrophization, right? Um, but so he's like, I stopped doing that because it, it wasn't helping at all. He's like, whereas now I just say, you know, you've got, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm hopefully saying it right, but can say, yeah, you've got a bit of a brain injury, but this is how we can manage that. And this is why you should continue doing those things. And I mean, even when we look at concussions years ago, it was go lay in a dark room, don't talk to anybody. Whereas now it's no, get up, move, go, 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 mm -hmm. you know? So, and, and you think about what happens to that, whether it's bed rest or whether it's somebody with a concussion that's laying in their bed for five days by themselves, sitting there ruminating about, I've got this pain, what's wrong with me? what's going on inside. Um, it just shows us that getting people up, getting them moving, getting their social support, getting those things around them, uh, we're going to have a much better chance of recovery as opposed to the, the old dogmas that we, that we used to do. Definitely. I'll make sure this diagram, if you are listening to the podcast, then in the show notes, I'll put um, links so you can have a look at this diagram. I'll put a link to somewhere where you can open it up. But it's a great image, which again, oh. if this is all new to you, people if you're listening on the I, I always hope that this podcast or these video chats i always hope that the people listening or a large percentage of people listening are people who are kind of they're listening because they've heard a few things on the grapevine and they're kind of like feeling a little bit threatened because it's like oh my god does it mean that everything i've heard that everything i've studied has been a waste of time and i'm hoping that that together with the guests who i get together like you jamie you're a great example that this information is not too threatening it's, it's mm -hmm. almost like the therapists are the patients or clients and, you know, we're having to treat you guys gently and, and with empathy because it can be scary. You think this threatens everything, but this diagram really helps you just sit down, have a look at it. It's got lovely colors, which is why we both like it. It helps you mm -hmm. see the different sections and just work your way through it and think, geez, this makes total sense. You know, relate yeah. it to yourself when you've been injured or you haven't been able to run or play tennis, whatever it is, and think what you thought, what you feared. And then just put yourself in that patient situation. It's, it doesn't mean you have to chuck everything out. It doesn't mean you're going to stop doing massage. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means you're going to grab so much more useful tools um, and really be able to help your, your client. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, well, for those of you that are uh, exactly what Matt was talking about, if you're going, oh, like all the stuff I learned in school was pointless and blah, blah, blah. When I started getting involved in learning more of this stuff, I was so angry. I got so mad. Where I was like, I spent $30,000 on this education and they taught me about trigger points and that's not a thing. And I like, I was just angry about everything. So if you're at that point, don't think that you're alone. I think many of us probably experienced that to some degree. So uh, if, but if you're experiencing that, it also means that you're on the right side and you're going the right direction. So continue down the road that you're going on um, because you're going to have a better career and you're going to have better outcomes with your people. But it's okay to be a little bit angry about it because we, I think we were all there at some point. Great advice. And it will get better. 
because ultimately yeah. a lot of us, most of us are in this because we just love helping people and seeing them get success. So if we can do anything which helps you get more success, and you won't, you'll never get 100% success because we don't know how humans work. We've only yeah. got a fraction of what's going on. But if you can be less wrong, as we often like saying, if you know how to be less yeah. wrong, um, then you will help more people more of the time. And there'll still be people who just kind of just doesn't work for whatever reason. Um, but you will definitely end up getting thanked more and you'll get that feeling inside thinking, this is why I do it. This is making sense now, which is, you know, why we do it anyway. And it really simplifies everything that you do because oh, you sure. don't have to, you don't have to come up with these big complicated explanations about why there's biomechanically things are going wrong inside people. And um, it, it, it makes it a lot simpler and, and a lot more fun. Mm. And people wonder, worry as well that it's going to mean that, it's all going to be over very quickly. You're not going to get enough clients per week and you're not going to be, have that traditional. I need to see every client six times to make me hit my books and get the balance and everything done. You will yeah. still people just because people, you're not going to be bending people back into shape. You will still be spending time with people, you know, and, and you can still come in and they still will want to probably chat to you, help them through it. Um, and you can still do, I loved it with, I think it was Gary Mendoza from a couple of weeks ago. I've always worried about this idea of maintenance massage and we all do it come in for a maintenance massage. And that's a dangerous one as well, because you're implying to that person often traditionally that unless they come in and see you, then they're going to get injured again. You need this maintenance massage, but you can still do maintenance massages, particularly if that person's coming in to have a chat, give them a massage, yeah. but it's the education. It's the reinforcing because people fall off the wagon. People forget you don't, you're not going to create someone who's never going to worry again and always going to take your advice. It just doesn't happen. Does it? So that's support self-management hugely. You know, we, yeah. we, we, I think sometimes there's too much emphasis put on this idea that um, we teach people how to manage themselves. We never see them again. That that's not humans. You know, you can, you know, maybe you can fix a car or something and it won't break again. It probably will for other reasons, but with humans, yeah. we're always going to fall off the wagon. It's, it's nature to push ourselves too much, particularly if they're sports people, particularly runners. So you will see them again and they'll be rec recommending their friends to you and stuff. So exactly. I think um, the other side of that too, if I can interject is like yeah, sure. the one thing that we have here in British Columbia anyway, is, it, is that um, with extended health benefits, we have like paramedics and nurses who get unlimited massage as paid for as part of their benefits. Um, so, I mean, you could build a practice on paramedics and nurses here in British Columbia. Um, and there's been some discussion about, well, what about when that nurse is coming in and they're not injured, but they still want a treatment? I'm like, I'm 100% fine with that because that nurse just worked a 12 hour shift and, you know, needs a break and was moving people around all day, has a stressful job. Same with those paramedics. So maybe what they're coming in for is that they just need an hour break from life. Mm -hmm. They need an hour break from being at home. They need an hour break from the kids. They need an hour break for the job. And they just need some support where they're on that table and just having something happen that feels really good for them. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a maintenance massage. And I'm like, I think, that's amazing. You should 100% take advantage of that. Most definitely. Yeah. Brilliant. Right. Time has beaten us once again. Um, let me just bring this up. Um, website. I'll read it out again for people who are listening. So um, if you like what Jamie has talked about, then there's loads of information at the MTDC. So it's T H E M T D C, which is the massage therapist development center, uh, com. Um, huge amount of articles and blogs uh, and information on there. Um, and also you've got courses. What's happening on the course front, 
Jamie, what have you got going on? Have you been um, so some live courses coming up. Two live courses in October, which is Eric and I teaching it together, um, and we also do that uh, via Zoom. But my online course, Pain Management Using Therapeutic Movement, is a lot about this stuff. Um, so, but I'm also developing a course specifically on um, pain-related fear and graded exposure. Uh, so that I think is hopefully we're going to be done in the fall and that'll be like a six or eight hour online course. Um, so it's a bit different than the clinical applications of pain management using therapeutic movement. And then the MTDC community membership is a monthly membership where I have um, different uh, presenters come in. For instance, like I said, Connor came in and did one on uh, concussions last week. I had Dr. Melanie Noel come in last month and talk about her research at the University of Calgary with uh, pediatric pain and, and understanding how that affects later in life. And so I've had, you know, pretty consistently monthly presentations on evidence-based stuff. And I mean, the membership's only like 27 bucks a month Canadian, which is like 50 cents UK um, <laughs> after you do the, <laughs> the conversion rate. Um, but, and it's just, you know, a Facebook group where we can all support each other in the group and, and things like that. So. Fantastic. Yeah, no, definitely. And people in the house already are definitely kind of, I know there's people in Becky Carroll says, I highly recommend following Jamie's page. Very informative. Um, yeah, it's great information. You're definitely one of the uh, top people that I recommend um, just for that input, you know, that input, that monthly input to, um, to see what's going on in the world. It's not all just, like I say, your own stuff. You really do form a nice little conduit of information from other great therapists as well. So it's definitely worth checking that out. Um, Thank you. Russian. I appreciate it. No, no, thank you. Um, if people want to follow you on social media, what are you most prolific on these days? Or uh, Probably most on the MTDC page on Facebook, uh, okay. which I think is at the MTDC one. Nice. And then just my personal page is Jamie M. Johnston. So hit me up and add me as a friend on there. And then on Instagram, it's at the MTDC. Um, and on Twitter is Jamie underscore MTDC. Brilliant. We'll make sure links to all of those social medias um, get put into the show notes, which appear on thesta.co.uk, which is the Sports Therapy Association webpage. That's thesta.co.uk. Um, and links to the slides which you have um, heard about if you listen to the podcast. Right, Jamie. Thank you so much. Um, be the thank pleasure you. as always talking to you. Thank you. Um, and thank you, everybody that listened. I'm not got some value. sure who's next week. I've got a couple of possibilities. Um, my planned guest is doing fantastic, wonderful things and moving countries. So we might have someone else on. So I can't announce now, but keep an eye out on my social media and you will see who's going to be same time, same place, eight o'clock BST um, on uh, either Facebook or on YouTube. Um, but for now, everybody listening, um, thanks for joining us live. And everyone listening to the podcast, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again um, in a week. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about it.